This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Dr. David Jarnazian chooses to pursue clinical application of mental health because he knows that no amount of material, social, financial, competitive, or skill-based success can be appreciated or even enjoyed when a person's mental health is poor. Valeria interviews Dr. David Jarnazian. He is a licensed clinical psychologist based in Los Angeles, California, that works with a variety of issues, ranging from depression, anxiety, trauma, PTSD, acculturative stress, assertiveness, anger, addiction, and personal growth and development. He practices from a relational perspective in terms of clinical technique, though David's conceptualizations are heavily influenced by the work of Carl Jung and his model of the psyche. David has been in full-time private practice since early 2021, though he has had experience working in a diverse array of settings, including community mental health, hospitals, as well as inpatient drug rehab centers. Meet Dr. David at drjarnaz.com. Here's the interview with Dr. David Jarnazian. In your own words, who is David Jarnazian? <laughs> Hey, um, so I am a licensed clinical psychologist. I am working in Los Angeles and uh, specifically La Crescent area. I don't have a specific clientele. I work across the board, mostly adults and teenagers. Uh, let's see, in terms of schooling, I graduated from Chicago School of Professional Psychology in 2019, where I got my PsyD in clinical psychology. Um, and I think maybe like a core aspect of this question is how I got into psychology ah, as a person. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's, I'm sure that's what everybody wants to hear, right? Yeah. Um, so funny story about that. My whole family is in mental health. My dad is a clinical psychologist. He still practices. My mom is a psychiatrist. She's been practicing for like 20 years. And my brother is also a clinical oh, psychologist. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we have a, I have a cousin, too, who's also a clinical psychologist. But, um, yeah, it stops there. And, uh, yeah, we're all in mental health. I don't know if you want to jump in, if you had any questions about that. Is that something that you always felt was, um, let's say, a purpose for you, a call for you, or you're influenced by your parents to become a psychologist? I mean, if there's one thing I've learned from studying psychology, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to tell how much of what we're choosing is actually us and how mm. much of it is mm. conscious programming in a way. 
So it, it's difficult to answer the question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a way, I was kind of tailored in a certain environment, you know, to be a certain way. But uh, it, at no point did I ever feel coerced or like forced. If anything, I felt pushed in the opposite direction. They wanted me to go in the medical field. <laughs> I love that because I do have a spiritual kind of perspective on that, that there's no one choosing anyway. <laughs> there's nobody here to choose. It's just life doing what it does, just being mm-hmm. life. But that's a different conversation. But with that in mind, do you have any spiritual views, belief systems, practices? Um, nothing concrete or that would fall into any specific category. But in terms of practices, I've been a daily meditator for, I think, 15 years on and off. Um I think this last stretch of about five years has been the most consistent for me. Uh, that That's in terms of practice, there's that. In terms of belief system, um, it, you know, I, I would actually revert to what you just said. It's just like identity or the self isn't necessarily one thing you can pin down. Mm-hmm. It's something that's constantly yeah. changing. My beliefs kind of tailor to situations frequently. And that's interesting, that kind of... Um it crosses into psychology because I speak to so many people, the mental health field, and I see that how much in common those perspectives um, they have. They just come together so beautifully. Yeah, that we are a combination of so many things, so many processes. And it kind of surprises me that we become a solid something. (laughs) Really, really surprised me to have a fixed idea of who we are. It's a very interesting philosophical question. It's something I've thought about a lot. You know, it's it's kind of, it kind of taps into that whole idea of like, things tend to exist on a continuum or spectrum in reality, but we perceive them quantized, right? In units, we break them into categories. And of course, there's that criticism of the human mind for doing that. But my (laughs) retort to that is that, okay, sure, that some something is lost, it's data compression. But at the same time, what you're gaining is the possibility for life because how else Mm. would you organize or make sense of anything? You have Mm. to make it into categories. Mm. If you were to experience it in its totality, it it would be impossible to understand the experience. So it's almost the, let's say, I call it separated wholeness, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we are. (laughs) So a piece of life that is, uh, it's whole at the same time. We are um, a small representation of life in its wholeness. How amazing. I do have another question for you about meditation. What is spiritual about meditation? What do you find to be spiritual? (laughs) That's a really good question. Um, Honestly, so there are obviously aspects of it that aren't spiritual. And I know I'll get to the spiritual part, I swear. (laughs) Um, Like the non-spiritual parts are just, uh, you know, the scientist in me. It, it, It reduces the amount of arousal in the body on average and, you know, in the immediate. It has a physiological effect, especially when you focus on your breathing and you focus the mind in a certain way. So there's obviously that. And then there's the obvious effect, like effect of like cognitively training the mind in terms of attention that has untold numbers of benefits psychologically. Uh, so, so there's those two in terms of being the concrete benefits. But in terms of the spiritual, I mean, I don't think anybody coming from a scientific perspective, which is where I actually consider myself coming even more from, can rationally describe the process or explain it appropriately. Like that's why it's so like difficult to teach. Um, Even in session with psychotherapy, I really, really struggle with teaching meditation. Um, It's, it's, it's something that really, 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 really has to be experienced. It's not something that that can really be explained. It's not something you can put into a textbook. The, The experience is 
absolutely, utterly ineffable. When it comes to spirituality, that's my idea, too, of what that is. It cannot be explained once we get to become aware of the process of the vastness of life. What comes to me is love in the end. From the meditative experiences I have had and, and the, the experiences as a human being as of today, it just goes back to love and then the expression of that being kindness in whatever way possible. Moving the conversation to mental health again, how do you define mental health? What is to be mentally healthy from your perspective, David? I mean, to be honest, it's not that different from being spiritually healthy. I think a lot of the spiritual terms people are using nowadays are just different words for the same things that professionals use. But I wouldn't, you know, completely use them interchangeably, but in a lot of ways. Um, so I would define mental health as I'd kind of go off of the World Health Organization thing here where they say that it's not ju it's not just the absence of disease. Right. Like it's not just the absence of like compulsions or uh, suicidal ideations or depression or whatever. It's also you being in a state where you're kind of leaning into growth, in, in my opinion, because I think you start to stagnate if that isn't part of the paradigm. Um, if there if there's no uh, inclination to challenge yourself and like an unhealthy frame around challenge and stress. In your bio, you say towards the end, you say no amount of material, social, financial, competitive or skill based success can be appreciated or even enjoyed when a person's mental health is poor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That caught my attention almost immediately. The question was like, oh, I would love to hear from him the description of poor mental health. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, so there, uh, to kind of defer to Tolstoy here, he had that famous quote, quote right, where, uh, you know, happy families are all alike, whereas the unhappy ones are miserable in their own unique ways, every single one of them. So yeah. depressing, which is so true. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I would go back to this. I would say this is a very specific form of mental unhealth that I'm speaking about here, something that I had more experience with personally and especially now professionally because, you know, just God knows how that happens. They just, people like that get drawn to you because they can perhaps feel something. Um, but the example I had in mind and one of the things that really pushed me into the clinical aspect of psychology was exactly this issue. I have seen so many people who have seemingly everything, like everything you should have to be mm. supposedly happy, but right. they're not. They're utterly miserable. And right. it's because their mental health won't let them appreciate it. They're stuck on something else. And if we were to really, really narrow in on what that is in terms of the, the pathophysiology, they're completely ignoring everything that they've accomplished at any given moment and only hyper fixated on that little increment forward. So it's what happens when you lean actually too much into self-development or self-progress, you know, it's like where you don't balance that with self-acceptance. You become this hungry ghost of a monster and all you can do is, is, is drive on the, or devour uh, successes. You, you become addicted to them. It's, it's, utter, it's the worst misery I can possibly think of. I thought about gratitude, so not being grateful for the things we already have. Exactly. Which to me, being the human body, being the human that we are, it's already a reason to feel fulfilled. Just being here in this moment, how fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's so true, David. And 
it feels to me like we have become, I mean, from that perspective or that point of view of not appreciating anything and just striving for more and more and more, the hungry ghost. Does it have to do with overthinking of believing that we are thoughts and being in our minds most of the time? You know, I've almost given up on trying to find yeah. causes when it comes to the human mind. All I find are yeah. endless loops that feed on each other. So yeah. what I can confirm is that's absolutely mm. the main causal process. Like that that's exactly what I would describe it as. Like if you can interfere at that part, that's one of the most effective ways to do it. Just kind of stop the patterns of thinking. I mean, ultimately you want to address the insecurity that's driving the whole thing, but in terms of actually reducing symptoms, that's That's the way. Another open question is about the human experience. What do you feel is the purpose of the human experience? Oh, my. <laughs> uh, so I, I think I would defer to Alan Watts here, where he says, the, some, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something along the lines of the purpose of human life is so obvious and so apparent that it doesn't even need to be stated. It's, it's just mm. to be alive, to have the mm. experience. Mm. Um, Beyond that, I, I really, I can't identify a purpose. If I were to, like, if I were to get, get scientific about it, the, the conclusions I would propose, or it wouldn't be me proposing them. They, it's just, that's the conclusions you come to are repugnant. They're disgusting. You know, it's, it's, it's the genetic, some of the genetic programming, a lot of the genetic programming we have, it, it predisposes us to some pretty nasty things, nasty behaviors. And uh, I don't think we can look to that for moral guidance necessarily. In the end, oh, in the sense that it's, yeah, it's just being here. That's how life fulfilling itself. I do believe that too, if it is a belief system. It really resonates true energetically. Yeah, it, it, that's, that's how I felt too when I first heard it. And just, just to add to that, I guess another way that people kind of add purpose to their lives when they feel like it's lacking for whatever reason yeah. <laughs> um, is they start to play games. Um, they don't realize they're playing games often. They have no idea. They're literally signing a contract with the devil. And the thing is like the devil comes to you as something enticing, not a demon with pitchforks and horns. He's not stupid. You know, he wants to trap you. So he'll come to you with the promise of huge muscles or a massive bank account, just do this, this or that. And you get totally caught in this game and you lose the entire purpose of being alive. You you transition completely from the state of being and appreciation and contentment to 100% hyperfixation on this focus of becoming. Wow, I love your wisdom and I love the symbology with the devil. Uh, symbolizing those thoughts we have that we don't need to pay attention to what we do. So true. I'm honestly just pulling on a lot of things I've read and a lot of much wiser people that have taught me. So, mm, Wow, I love that you say that. Thank you so much, David, for repeating that wisdom, kind of making that your own, because it is. it feels to me that it is the wisdom of the soul, the spirit, if there is such a thing. Absolutely. To me, it's just life doing what it does. But there is something about love, unconditional love, that's it kind of um, bypasses the mind. It's beyond the mind. Absolutely. It's very simple. It's, it's true. Like you said, uh, Alan Watts said, it's so simple. It's here. It's so obvious that we miss the point. Absolutely. Another question is, open question is, what is healing to you and what are some of the obstacles to healing? 
Oh, the obstacles are endless. Going back to that thing of every person, every unhappy family is unhappy yeah. in its own yeah. unique way. <laughs> yeah. uh, obstacles are endless. But if I were to like data, really data compress the idea here, I would say uh, above all, to quote Dostoevsky, don't lie to yourself. You know, and that that takes so many forms. Self-deception is the path to hell. The question, I guess, that comes to me, how do we learn to recognize those lies? How simple is that? <laughs> oh, and that is the process that if, you know, as an object set in motion will continue in motion unless yeah. acted upon mm. by an outside force, it's mm. the same concept. It, it mm. needs an outside force. Mm. If you silo up and you isolate yourself, you will just continue being more and more of exactly what you are. And eventually, unfortunately, you'll, you'll deal with the consequences of that, whether it be an implosion or an explosion psychologically. Then, um, so it, it's really interaction with other people, ideally mental health professionals, but I, you know, I get it. The reality of that is that most people don't necessarily have access immediately. So just interaction with other people. It's our feedback system. It's our mental filtration system is other people. Mm, wow. Assuming they're healthy. Yeah, right. Um, beautifully said. I do believe in relationships as the almost like the foundation for healing, huh? the personal wounds or so seeing ourselves better. That makes so much sense to me. Yeah, and you do say that relational perspective, it comes from a relational perspective and attachment-based framework. So that's what you mean by that, David? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, no, that's, that, that really kind of crosses into the clinical work where, you know, and the irony of this is, is that I know it doesn't sound particularly uh, from a, you know, empirical scientific framework, but the irony is, is that that's actually the most empirically validated uh, finding in all of psychotherapy outcome research is that the relationship is the most powerful predictor of the therapy's outcome. Mm, oh, Wow. So that's where yeah. I put my focus. Sorry. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it makes so much sense to me. It resonates true. When I read that, I didn't quite understand the perspective in the sense of explanation the way you just clarified, but it resonated immediately, the word relationship. There's something mm -hmm. about even the word that carries a lot of power. Let's see. Another question I have for you is about the, the destination for healing. Do you see one getting to the point of saying, I am healed? Oh, wow. That's that's a really good question, too. Um, I would defer to what you said earlier, where you mentioned that it's a practice, it, you know, and I think that if you try to treat it that way as a definite destination, it actually kind of you're almost signing on for a bunch of psychological problems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, the biggest thing there, I would say, is that Okay, so you get it, right? Let's say you've hit your perceived equivalent of enlightenment or psychological whatever. Um, first off, as, again, as Alan Watts said, the highest virtue is never self-conscious of itself. And so you, you wouldn't really necessarily be completely aware of that, or at least if you were aware of it, you wouldn't be labeling it necessarily. And then the other piece is, okay, let's say by any, by some chance you can and still maintain that process. Well, good luck maintaining that every single day for the rest of your life, mm -hmm, because right. the only way now is like, there's no way up. It's only down. I love the way you clarify these things and <laughs> the way you answer to these questions are just so beautiful from that perspective, big picture of life. No, I love the questions. They kind of get, they, they're not you know, they don't get caught in the weeds. That That's exactly what it is. They're big picture questions. And I like thinking that way. Me too. Yeah, that's one of the 
the purpose of using the mind, <laughs> from my perspective, kind of it, it's it's fun to me to see the the big picture of things using the mind. Another question that that would be my last opening question for today: What is the meaning of freedom to you? Does it goes back to that idea, the same idea of uh, destination for healing, not having one? It's it's tricky because. You know, actually, it's funny because we came back full circle. It's the idea of freedom going with free will that I mentioned in the beginning where, you know, I don't just as a psychologist, as someone who's done his homework on this, it's I don't think we have as much agency as we think we do in a lot of areas. Not to say that we have none. We, I think we definitely have some agency and that comes with awareness. And that's the whole point of becoming more and more aware. But um, at, at the same time, it, I think that really can it's recognizing and really becoming humbly aware of what you do have agency over versus what you don't. And the way I operationalize that is you have absolutely no control over what you want, but you have control with what you do with that want. What do you think or feel is the world's greatest need at this time? Compassion and understanding. Mm. And like I'm genuinely blessed to be day after day doing a job where that's what I get to teach people. Do you meet your clients online and offline, David? Yeah, yeah, no, I do. I do both. Um, generally, I mean, most people seem to prefer in person, but obviously convenience factors. It's like some people just can't make it into the office or they live too far away and they really want to meet. So that's the only option we do, uh, like virtual sessions or over the phone. You work with a variety of issues, uh, depression, anxiety, trauma, PTSD, stress, assertiveness, anger, addiction, personal growth, development. The one that caught my attention was assertiveness. Mm -hmm. Talk to me for a moment about this being an issue. Yeah, that is probably one of the most common issues right now, even with people who have, you know, covered with a separate major psychological issue. Almost always do that people have an issue, uh, problems calibrating their level of assertiveness for each situation. Um, oftentimes, you'll notice that people with really poor boundaries have, it, it's the same thing as saying they have a problem with being assertive, right? And we're, we're obviously, we're talking about the people who aren't assertive enough, being too assertive is its own issue, but uh, more frequently, it's not being assertive enough. Um, I find the first thing I tell anybody who comes in with that kind of issue is, uh, you know, you, you you need to let go of your definition of what a nice person is and what, an, you know, a mean person is, so to speak. And I, I, I make a, I, I almost never, you know, make predictions or anything because I don't believe in them. But the one prediction I can make with absolute uncertainty is that if there's someone who's dealing with struggling with assertiveness or struggling with boundaries, if I mention, like, if I say that, the moment we start implementing healthy boundaries, you're going to start feeling like a really mean person. That's mm. a guarantee. Mm. Literally a guarantee. <laughs> so true. Wow, I can relate to that. That has been one of my greatest challenges, you know, to say no. <laughs> and I feel like I am mean or unkind to people. Absolutely. And it's strangely, you defer to the same approach you would take for any phobia. It's just exposure. <laughs> Keep trying to say no in smaller, uh, in small, small ways and then kind of make it bigger and bigger. It has been an incredible practice. The main t 
topic, and we have talked so many things, but I know that the main topic is about a modern Jungian approach to clinical treatment. This is the title of the episode two. So talk to me about those six areas. I have them here in front of me, David. Would you like me to kind of go one by one, or you can talk about all of them at once as well? Yeah, um, I, I could just jump in. We can go one by one. I can say a few things about each of them. Um, I, I, I can start it. It's you know, it's basically I wanted to provide just a basic structure of the mind and like a map of what it looks like from a Jungian framework. And I'm not going to go into full, full, full detail. This right. stuff can get pretty esoteric. Yeah, but, I can um, imagine. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very spiritual, actually, uh, at, its, at its extremes. And it's uh-huh. awesome, but I digress. So basic split, this part's not going to be a surprise of conscious versus unconscious. Conscious being the things in your mind that you know about, the things that you can see and understand, those thoughts and feelings that you know are there. Uh, The unconscious being all the things that you're not aware of, basically the complete opposite of the conscious. So this includes things like, well, it could include really boring things like breathing, heart rate, respiration, things like that. But it also includes more uh, emotionally relevant things like repressed memories, repressed thoughts, feelings that we don't want to admit to ourselves, things like that. Feelings and emotions, are they different? Do you um, differentiate them or they are one and the same? Okay, so uh, I do. I do. It's just I I wouldn't want anybody to quote me on the terminology here because I've seen it, depending on whether you're coming at this from a psychological framework or a neuroscience framework or whatever other framework, they have different terminology for the same phenomenon. So what I'm using, yeah, they're told, they're different things in my opinion. So a feeling is basically the, like the un, uncooked, unbaked version of an emotion. So feel, feelings are like sensations that come up in our body And oftentimes they're physiological, things like an unpleasant feeling in your stomach, your heart rate uh, increasing or lowering, or your blood pressure rapidly changing by, you know, a large amount, Um, you starting to sweat, things like that, you know, physiological little cues that you're probably not even consciously aware of. Those are what produce the actual feelings. Those are the sensations in your body. I, I use that interchangeably with sensations. Uh, so this would be like a bad feeling in your stomach or something like that. You don't have an explanation for it yet. And once it gets to that higher order process, this is where we separate from, I think, most most animals. Um, it, it goes to that higher order process of cognitive conceptualization, meaning you think about it. There is a way to think of like you basically instead of just experiencing the emotion, you're thinking about yourself experiencing the emotion, which adds a whole nother layer And frankly, this is where you get emotions. So that's where it goes from feelings to emotions. And one last thing on this, this is where most psychopathology, most mental health problems arise. Um, So in terms of a Jungian framework, another aspect of the breakdown is in the conscious area, you have the persona. And that's basically your social mask. It's who you kind of show to the world. It's a pretty shallow, pretty, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not a remarkably deep aspect of the self, but it's important because it's what most people are seeing most of the time. So they'll confuse that with what's underneath. But just like that whole iceberg analogy, this is just a tip. Um, next, you have the ego, which is debated. You know, it's partially conscious, partially unconscious. That's the largely the experience of the self. And in a Jungian framework, it has a slightly different definition in that it's the part of your mind 
that you cling to to cover up your shadow, which is everything that you actually hate about yourself or don't want to admit about yourself, all your insecurities, all the you know, unfortunate things about reality that you don't want to acknowledge, whether in yours or about the world, all the unexamined things. Uh, the, the ego is basically a reaction to the shadow to, to cover it up, to make up for it, so to speak, a compensatory mechanism. And I don't know if you had any questions about that. And I wonder how much of the ego is unconscious. Is that mm -hmm. most of mm -hmm. it unconscious, David? Or are we conscious that we are not being true to ourselves? Again, this one's a debated issue. And I think it varies between person to person. Uh, like different people have different degrees of awareness surrounding their ego and you know how much of an impact it has on them. And even just different theorists, different psychologists, different analysts have different definitions on this. If you ask me, it's both. I think they're conscious and unconscious aspects of ego. But the fact that the whole thing is so inextricably linked to the shadow and that process is strictly unconscious or almost entirely unconscious, that tells me that it's basically an unconscious process, even if you are aware of Because like you, you may be seeing the puppet, but you're not seeing the person pulling the puppet strings at all. Right. That's true. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yes. Yeah. The next one would be the self. That's my favorite one. Yes. <laughs> If yes. I have the right definition. <laughs> Absolutely. I have it ordered. I have that one out of order. Oh. So maybe I should put, say, the anima and the animist mm. before that and yeah. then lead into the self. Because yeah. that's, uh, yeah. So the anima and the animus are, depending on if you're male and female, um, So the, you know, the stereotypical male psyche would have an, an anima, which is the, a part of his unconscious that basically represents his feminine aspects. It's kind of like a little female homunculus inside of every male's head. And they have varying degrees of connection to this aspect of themselves. It's frankly where our compassion and our life force and our libido and eros and all that is said to come from. Actually, the word animated, which defines the difference between dead matter and living matter, comes from this anima. Um, and the animus is the inverse in the female psyche, the stereotypical female psyche, where it's a masculine homunculus in her unconscious. And again, it's... It, accepted and acknowledged to varying degrees depending on the person. The self is the absolute most fascinating aspect of all this because it's the actual integration and totality of all the other aspects of consciousness mm. together. Yeah. And you know how you're in the beginning, you define the self as a process. That's exactly this. Like, like I was so glad that you described it that way because that there's no better way to put it. It's, I would just defer to your explanation. The totality of self as a process constantly unfolding and flowering. And, and that, according to you, that was the purpose of life. That the task of lifetime is to become truly who you actually are. I have asked a question for you about the intuition. How does it fit in? Do you ever... Talk about intuition to your clients. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, intuition is a huge, huge, huge part of like not only my practice, but also the Jungian framework. Um, I, I personally, you know, I don't want to give you the Jungian thing. I want to give you my own explanation of how I see intuition, because I think it's a little bit more intuitively understandable. Uh, the, the way I see it is there's 
it, it is a magical process and I appreciate the magic of it, but I, you can even demystify it. You know, you don't have to call it some kind of, cause, cause that, you know, when you describe it as magical, when you describe it as a spiritual or transcendent process, it turns a, a certain subset of people off. So I always like having a, an explanation, a more mechanistic one. And the way I would explain it is, and this maps into mindfulness and spirituality and meditation and being present is that what your mind is constantly trying to do is automatize things and so the first time you do something let's say a new task like throwing a baseball right it's it, you have to consciously think about every aspect of the task you have to literally watch your hand throwing the ball and then every time you do it after that, as you get better and better, it gets more and more automatic to the point where you're not even consciously doing the thing. It's basically a program that's encoded inside of your brain that the moment a certain situation presents itself, you activate that program. And it's, it, again, it becomes completely unconscious. And that program, essentially, the activation of that program is intuition. It's your, it's everything you've learned being relegated to automaticity, which makes it much, much more effective. That's a very different explanation for intuition. I think it's the first <laughs> time I have heard it this way, uh, becoming almost like a program in itself. And, and you know, not, not, not to be reductionist about it, yeah. because it's, <laughs> it, again, there's something deeper to it. It's just, you know, if I were to highlight a, a mechanistic process, that's probably what underlies it. Right. Nothing is as simple as we think it is. Exactly. The main word here is think. Yeah, the idea that we can think and explain everything away. I think the second, I would say, area of the Jungian approach that you have sent it to me is the notion of multiple selves, drives, or instincts competing for expression. I think we yes. have been talking about this already, but yet I would love to hear from you some more. Yeah, no, of course. We've been weaving in and out of a lot of this the whole time, I think, yeah. which is great because yeah. we can just circle back to it. Um, in terms of multiple selves, one of the first things I'll tell people in therapy is that you don't, I, I guarantee you, you may think you're one person and that's, you know, byproduct of over-identification with the ego, but there's more, there's, there's at least another per one other person down there, you know, and depending on how many unprocessed emotions and experiences and trauma you have, there may be more. And it kind of the way I look at it is it's like a, a, a one car, one steering wheel, three drivers constantly fighting depending on the situation. Wow. And then the area three is need for integration of opposites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is my kind of, not my, sorry, this is Jung and, you know, my clinical approach to healing, basically. And it's all psychological development is the integration of opposites. So conscious and unconscious, we make the unconscious conscious. That's one of the major opposites. Or just to tie into what we were just talking about, the shadow and the ego must become integrated. The anima and, or sorry, basically the conscious uh, masculine and the unconscious anima need to be integrated or the conscious feminine and the unconscious animus need to be integrated. Um, let's see. There are other opposites I can think of, but those are the ones that stand out immediately. So, so, so you know, there's a lot more to that process. It's a very top-down way of describing it, but generally speaking. So the integration of opposites, um, mm -hmm. yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me too. In the sense of seeing again from the big picture that almost this experience wouldn't be possible without opposites. 
So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what life is all about in a way. That's what comes to me when I think about opposites and integrating them, being able to see the big picture. And then uh, four archetypes and the collective unconscious. This is a fascinating one too. Absolutely. Uh, this is this is one of the coolest parts of it all. Where, So when I was giving that uh, basic definition of the structure of the mind from a Jungian framework earlier, I left one part out. And it's this bit, it's the collective unconscious. And the way he conceptualized it is that underneath and connected to the personal unconscious is a deeper layer. And it's the layer that connects us to our entire species. Essentially, the way I would conceptualize this uh, scientifically is genes, you know, genetic memory. He wasn't that far off because, you know, we're still finding out how much genes encode. So uh, I digress, but he, he had a more spiritual view of it. And the, the way he saw it is that even in, in some ways, memories could be, or experiences could be encoded. And again, you know, certain experiences are genetically encoded when you think about it. Like we have a genetically encoded response to spiders and snakes, for example, uh, or versions to certain things. And, and I think this is really what he was speaking to before the science was there. Um, it's it's fascinating because this is the part of us, the, the, the part of human, human psyche that connects us to everyone else and probably enables many, if not most, spiritual transcendent experiences. In the five process of projection, repression, denial, mm-hmm. and then sublimation, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, yeah. suppression, etc., so these are just some basic defenses I wanted to outline. I mean, these aren't necessarily Jungian defenses, but they're the ones he outlines the most. I think the person who's most famous for like kind of outlining all these was Freud's daughter, Anna Freud, um, and, and Freud as well. But she she really kind of wrote the book on them. Uh, but they, they all use these ideas. So one of the major defenses that people rely on, according to Jung, is projection. And projection is when, let's say... I'm presented with a piece of information or reality that I can't tolerate, um, especially if it's about myself. Let's say I, I realize that I'm a liar, you know, and what I'll do is I'll push that down into my unconscious, which is repression. So I'm not consciously aware of it anymore. So it doesn't hurt me anymore. And instead of seeing it in myself, I project it out onto everybody else. and I mm. become paranoid of everybody else lying. Mm. Um that, yeah. that process is, that's why I say it's so important to be honest with yourself and why that's the cardinal rule of mental health. Because you, you can poison all the social support in the world if you lie to yourself and project that out. Uh, it, it'll never get in. Yeah. So true. Um, and then I think I outlined repression in that process, but basically just pushing, the, pushing it down into the unconscious. Denial is a form of repression where you just absolutely refuse to admit the thing is there. Um sublimation is one of the really interesting ones it's my personal favorite defense to be honest and um, it's the process of taking an unacceptable impulse or energy or feeling basically as we were talking about earlier uh, a feeling not an emotion and consciously channeling that towards something that is socially acceptable so like the unhealthy way of doing this is called displacement where let's say my boss I don't have yells at me and I go home and I kick the dog that I don't have. Right. So uh, that's the classic example of, of displacement, but sublimation would be my boss yells at me. I get really pissed off. I go to the gym and get an awesome workout. 
it is a form of escape, but it's a, a healthy one, right, mm-hmm. David? Yeah. You know, I, I call it the fundamental bit. It's like alchemical almost ah. to, to be a little spiritual because ah. you're, you're turning something into something else. So you're transmutating an emotion. Ah, that makes so much sense. Right, right, right. Going to the gym and working out. Yeah, I have done that, mm-hmm. of course, many times. A funny example I could share from my own personal life is like, I really like horror movies, a certain type of horror movie, yeah. like the <laughs> ghost demon ones. And I, you know, it's because if I'm honest with myself, like I can tell it's like scaring me, but for yeah. whatever reason, uh-huh. I sublimate that fear into pleasure and it becomes an intensely enjoyable experience to watch really <laughs> scary horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is funny. <laughs> so it's like becoming an alchemist. It's Mm -hmm. um, transforming energy, which everything is to me from my perspective, energetic Mm -hmm. vibrations. Projection, that's an interesting one. So the question I have about that is um, it's blaming somebody else. Oftentimes, yes, yeah. It's an inability to acknowledge your own responsibility in the matter. So you basically take all the emotional charge and direct it at the poster child, which is the person in front of you. Yeah, that's a sad one to see. So many of us do that. It's almost has become a a collective habit. (laughs) Absolutely. Bad habit. And then the last one is complexes of projections of the collective unconscious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So complexes are almost like... I guess going back into archetypes, which we didn't really talk about, the the archetypes are aspects in the collective unconscious that show up over and over and over again. Certain stories or historical themes or uh, emotional themes, like, for example, uh, you will keep seeing dragons across cultures everywhere. It's an archetype of power and a few other things as well. Or you'll keep seeing swords or, you know, they call it the logos, in it, which it can be described as the, as the word or intellect. There are certain things that you'll just over and over, or, the, or, or a certain type of mother, the great or the terrible smothering mother. These, these things keep showing up in stories, and oftentimes they latch onto us for whatever reason, we might have a vulnerability because of something in our childhood or whatever, and they latch onto us and they develop a complex. And these complexes become like those selves that we were talking about, those selves that you don't necessarily have as much control of or access to that pop up at the most inopportune times to, you know, enact their goals. So that, that that's how complexes kind of get formed from my framework. I, I'm sure there's some hardcore unions out there that are like totally going to be like, no, that's not it. But that's that's how I conceptualize it. Yeah. So that's also interesting to see that even therapists interpret these processes or all these way of seeing the mind differently. That oh, kind yeah. of fascinates me as well. Huh? Amazes me, actually, because you think that this will be a lot more straightforward and scientific and almost like fact-like that everyone would agree, but it's not the case. You know, you say amazes you, it terrifies me. It's always terrified me. (laughs) But to be honest, you know, if you can get past the urge to be right, you Mm. know, and that that Mm. kind of arrogance that comes with that, you can can have some really interesting discussions because that whole uh, kind of group of people, which, you know, the Internet's allowed you to connect to them in, in new ways. I, I, I'm in like a bunch of, you know, rooms where I can communicate with them and it, it's fascinating. You know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Constant intellectual stimulating arguments, discussions. It's great. Yeah. yeah, it is great. I agree. That keeps the, this dance <laughs> a really interesting one, the dance mm-hmm. of life. So we're almost at the end. It has been uh, such a beautiful conversation to have here with you. It's just, you've got me to pause many times because the way you 
explain these things from your own perspective is just beautiful. And yeah, very different too. Beautifully different. Thank you. <laughs> but very Thank clear, uh, any spiritual to me, it feels like. What is another word for healing? What comes to mind? Truth. 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 Yeah, and going into the whole idea of being as honest with yourself as you can be, no matter how much it hurts, because that pain, I understand it hurts and I deeply sympathize with everybody's emotional pain at looking at the truth. But the thing is, the, the reason it hurts is because you're burning away the lies. You're burning away the cancer on your soul. Mm. That's why it hurts. So mm. please do it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yes, a trillion times to the process, mm -hmm. right? Of mm -hmm. Burning what we are not. And the last question is, what three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? Wow. Okay. Um, so the first thing that popped into mind was an experience that makes you feel strong, powerful in a way. You know, not necessarily in a pathological way. There are plenty of healthy ways to feel that. You know, some people it's weightlifting, some people it's martial arts, some people it's skydiving, some people it's rock climbing, just something that makes you feel powerful and competent, you know, and, and ideally something that you can you know, you do frequently. Um, other than that, an experience with a person that makes you feel loved beyond measure, you know, like a peak experience, like a transcendent experience. And, you know, the way I would explain that is like, uh, at least for me, it's like I had a moment in my life where I'm like, wow, everything I knew about life was completely wrong until this moment. This is this is it. This is the truth. And, and that kind of, that kind of yeah. moment, uh, I think everybody should have that kind of moment, whether it's romantic or whether it's mm. a more spiritual, higher order uh, affinity. I, I would hope, you know, because it's just it's a nice experience. Um, and then, you know, I don't have any kids, but I'm very, 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 very attached to my niece and um, and my and my nephew who's just just born. But um, like that that attachment of you know whether you you're having kids or whether someone you know is having kids just spend time around children i guess because they are the way spiritually there's no better spiritual teacher they just naturally by default are in a spiritual very <laughs> mindful state of mind that is beautiful oh my god i love that they are so true right that, uh -huh, uh, uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> they can't help it, but be true. <laughs> yeah, I love what he said just now because yeah, it resonates true again, right? Children, yeah, the, the representation of spiritual knowledge. And I see that in animals too. Absolutely, I completely agree. In yeah. a different way, of course. So before we say goodbye, I wanted to thank you again for who you are exactly as you are, this expression of truth and your own truth being manifested here and now. It's just incredibly beautiful. Also your intention to help others. Thank you so much, David, for being Thank here. You. Thank you for the like, extremely insightful and stimulating questions. I had a lot of fun. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your services and future projects? Um, honestly, probably my website's the best place. It's uh, drjernaz.com. short for my last name, Jernazian, D-R-J-E-R. NAC.com. Yes, and I will have the link on your podcast profile as well. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Of course, of course. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, David. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. David Jarnesian and his work, please visit 
drjourneys.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.